There are a lot of things that no one tells you about parenting. Among them, just how many times you and the children you love will drive each other wild. How can we all do better at parenting, at kidding, and at just generally being together without a whole lot of yelling or habitual banishment to our respective rooms? Today, we rely on the great Maurice Sendak to consider the themes of coping, punishment, imagination, and, of course, wild rumpuses found in the classic children's picture book, Where the Wild Things Are. We'll find ways to talk about these big ideas with the children in your lives, and you'll hear from one of the children in mine. I'm Sarah DeBacher. You're listening to Little Voices, Big Ideas. Let the wild rumpus start. Rumpus, rumpa rumpus, let the wild rumpus start. Let the wild rumpus start. Let the wild rumpus start. Rumpa rumpa rump, rump rump, rumpa rumpa rump, I am joined, as always, by scholars Helen Taylor. Hello. Freddie Evans. Hello. And Tom Wartenberg. Helen, can you get us started with um, a brief synopsis of this wildly wonderful book? Yes, this is a very famous uh, picture book by Marie Sendak, published in 1963, and a Caldecott Medal winner. And we meet uh, the boy Max, he's wearing a wolf suit and he's making mischief of one kind or another, uh, including chasing his dog with a large fork. His mother calls him wild thing and sends him to his room without any supper. While Max is in his room, a forest grows, an ocean tumbles by with a boat for Max and he sails for over a year in and out of days and weeks until he comes to where the wild things are. And the wild things join Max in a, a wild rumpus where he is in charge and they have to do what he says. But ultimately Max gets lonely and he smells supper cooking. And it is this smell that sends him back in his boat to his room where his supper is waiting for him. And the wonderful last line of the book, and it's still hot. Hmm. Tom Wattenberg, tell us about this book, where the wild things are. What's going on here? Yeah, well, that's a great question, because I think as soon as you finish this book, you think, whoa, what has actually happened in this story? The thing that's interesting is that Sendak doesn't give us any help in figuring it out. Um, in the frame story, what we're actually getting, the images show us the nature of the story that... Um, Sendak has created. So there are sort of objective views onto that world. But in the middle, what we're really getting is much more subjective. And I think this is the thing that you have, that's sometimes hard to understand about the book. Um, I actually think that what you're seeing is the contents of Max's consciousness. For me, it's not completely clear whether he's dreaming or whether he's just imagining things. But I do think this book is really revolutionary in the fact that it's actually presenting us with images of what a child's experience is actually like. Mm. And insofar as this book does that, it's doing something that most picture books don't even try to do, right? They just sort of show us the world objectively and we see the characters in the world, but we don't actually see 
what is it like to be Max? What is it like to be a child? And, and Sendak really wants us to experience that. I think that's one of the sort of most important features of this book that made it so revolutionary and important when it was written, as, as you said, Helen, in 1963, this sort of thing hadn't been really attempted before. There are some precursors, but it, it's pretty unique. Yeah, I think the middle of the book honors the child's imagination. Previous children's books had told a story. There was a narrative which laid out something that the child perhaps was supposed to think. But here, every child is going to respond differently to being punished, being sent to his or her room, and then how we cope with it. I mean, I referred to this as the therapeutic imagination, right? Because one of the things that Max does is both punish himself and celebrate himself for his being a wild thing. <laughs> yeah, I think psychologists often talk about working through emotions. And it really feels to me that what we're seeing is Max working through his emotions, right? Because he's angry at first. His mother sent him up to his room without his supper. And he probably, like most kids would say, oh, that's so unfair. I mean, he doesn't say that in this book, but we can just assume that he's angry. So if he's angry, he's not feeling very loving towards his mother. And so what he has to do is work through those emotions so that he can get back to the place of being able to experience the love that he feels for his mother, which is what happens right before he goes back to his room. I mean, if you're angry at your mother and your mother's more powerful than you are, what do you do? The mother's quite angry too, right? I mean, I paid attention to her a lot more than I think I have in the past. You know, his mother called him wild thing, all caps, exclamation mark, you know, and boy, did I kind of resonate with her. Freddie, you had some insightful things to say about this theme and parenting and, and modeling. Yes, I want to follow up with um, what Tom said also about working through emotions, mm. because in the process of working through emotions and taking this adventure, which is what children do so much, he ended up remembering and modeling what he had experienced in real life because he ends up repeating some of the things that his mom said. His mom called him a wild thing. During the rumpus, he called the um, the wild things wild things. He sent them off to their beds without supper. Although he's in this adventurous stage, he's also using some of the things that he knows from real life situations. He says, I'm going where someone loves me. And, and they say, well, we love you. We'll eat you up. Stay with us. Is there a different kind of love? And this is a great opportunity to talk to children about different kinds of love. Because I think that it's clear in the book that the love that Max needed at the end of the rompas was not the love that those wild things were able to give to him. Helen, you mentioned um, parenting. And the importance of words, because it was his words that sent him to punishment. He said, um, I'll eat you up. And the mom sent him away without food. What precipitated his statement? What did his mom say to him? She called him a wild thing. And did she incite his behavior? Did she encourage it? What would have been different about the story had she called him something else? Had she not called him a wild thing? And I think that's the cleverness of the writer here. He uses the words, I love you differently. And he uses the words, I'll eat you up differently. So we are to imagine and we are to discuss and maybe project our own feelings on what he meant. 
it's interesting, this business of whether he is expressing love for his mother or not, because I've always seen the story as about Max's anxieties. He called his mother a wild thing, uh, or she called him a wild thing, and he said, I'll eat you up. And so he's punished for that. So whether he meant it or not, he's been punished. So what happens in his imagination is a response to that. And it seems to me that he tries to reframe the situation, as you said, Tom. But he must be feeling some anxiety about whether his mother loves him unconditionally, because the way he talks to the wild things, the way he tries to control the wild things, he's got some anxieties there. And I think probably this reflects the children. You know, when you punished, can you be certain that your parents are punishing you out of love or out of anger? I mean, I think there's a lot of anxieties there that Max is experiencing. And so when he smells the food, he's instantly reassured. Yes, of course she loves him. She's, she's made my supper. And that impels him back. goodness y'all I I have been thinking so so much about this book because of course I I talked about it and we're gonna hear from my son Robin but the way I want to set this up is just by telling you like we had to achieve a goal together recording ourselves talking for this podcast it was not the kind of ordinary reading and discussing scenario that I have with my boys where we're cuddled up we do talk about big ideas ordinarily, but having, you know, microphones in front of them and, you know, sort of the anxiety, right, of being listened to, they were aware of this kind of, this other space. And um, we didn't, we didn't get along. <laughs> and there were times when I found myself reminding them that this was a job, you know, and they just needed to do it. And it became kind of meta, right? Because I needed to discipline them in this moment. I mean, it's just, maybe I'm breaking the fourth wall a bit too much here in talking about this. Um, the reason why I'm pointing this out is because the subject of punishment and discipline was one that we talked about a lot. It's one that we talk about a lot in regular life. And one of the reasons why I identify with the mom is because we're all wild things. And she loses her cool. And she goes back and she makes that dinner. And I do that a lot. Um, let's listen to Robin talk a little bit about what it is that he's learned from some of the approaches that I've taken to mothering as a wild thing. The point of a punishment is usually to for you to learn something, but I think what's better is like you make a punishment that has something to do with what you did badly, so then like you actually learn something from it. So what would have been, what would have been fair? I guess if you were in charge, if you were his mom. Something that I probably would have done if I was Max's mom, I would have said, Hey, hey kid, so guess what? Because you nailed a giant nail into the wall and you chased our dog with a giant fork, there's two things. First of all, you can't hang out with a dog 
for the next two days because, like, it's clear that you don't know how to act around that dog. And then if there's something dumb that you're about to do, always check with me first. <laughs> check with me first, kiddo. What are y'all hearing there? Exactly what Tom said about the punishment fitting the incident. Mm-hmm. And he knows that. He knows the value of connecting the two. He sure does. <laughs> Whatever else the book does, it provides a really great opportunity for this sort of discussion because kids obviously get punished a lot, probably in school and by their parents. And so it's obviously something that troubles children, right? And one of the great things about using picture books is that you can have a discussion of punishment without having Robin being mad at you. You can say, let's just talk about punishment. What's appropriate? What's some appropriate punishment? And he says something and you can say, I actually don't agree with you. You know, one of the things that's such so valuable having these conversations with children that are based on picture books is that you can take a topic that's really hot and has a lot of emotions attached to it. And because you're using a story to discuss it, it has that distancing function. And that allows you to sort of, with a little bit more dispassionately, have a conversation and maybe make some progress in reaching mutual understanding about the nature of punishment and the reason that child has to be punished and why it makes sense for parents to punish children. You can't do that when you're mad at your kid and your kid's mad at you, right? I think it's a great opportunity a book like this provides. And that's not talking about all the fancy stuff that's involved in the book, but just the straightforward uh, narrative where there's a punishment and they are all clear about what it is. And I think the fact, as we've said, that we've got four or five illustrations in the middle section of the book with no text whatsoever mm. gives our families an opportunity to ask, you know, what is Max feeling here? What are the wild things feeling? So you can talk about feelings without being told what the author wants you to think about the feelings. You can generate those ideas yourself as a family. You don't need to ask a child, or at least not my sons anyway, what a wild rumpus is for them to sort of immediately know <laughs> what a wild rumpus is because of these illustrations. One of the things that fascinated me about reading the book with my boys is that every time we get to the wild rumpus, they associate it with music and dance. I mean, you can see that there's music and dance there, but they feel compelled to move their bodies and to make music which amuses me to no end, but it also, I think, is, again, related to that notion of how is it that we cope with feelings? Well, and we've all been sent to our rooms, right, for the pandemic. Oh, so my gosh. <laughs> I hear you saying something that I want to reinforce, and that's the importance of music and the role of music mm. in the book we see really rhythmical illustrations you know moving they are very active mm -hmm. but your son said something in one of his clips about using music as that means of um, bridging the emotions Tom how did you say that about working through your emotions those illustrations show movement they show the rhythm you know, which is very important in working through emotions. So I don't think that we should let that pass. Thank you. Should we listen to Robin talk about music? 
How have you coped? What do you do to cope when things are difficult? I sometimes do is like I sing a song in my head or I play my violin. There's like this positive song that I'd like hum in my head. Sometimes I do that when like I'm angry at Charlie and before I like I try and think before I act and like I just sing that song to calm myself down. And like I said, like I'm easy to set off even though my my bomb fuse is like 10 miles long. It's made of polyester, so it just burns really fast. So that's something I do to cope sometimes. Like I just like sing a song. You can hear this is something that Robin has thought a lot about. <laughs> I, I think it's important here to also talk about coping skills. Like when you're having those discussions, Tom, that you mentioned when we're not angry, we're just reading a book, sitting down, discussing. That is a great time to talk about ways that we can cope or deal with our emotions or work through our emotions in a socially acceptable way. So it could be singing, it could be dancing, it could be writing, it could be drawing. You mentioned illustrations and drawings earlier. So what are some ways that we can do that? I also think it's interesting and something that actually adults even might not think about a whole lot is that um, how do you think about love? Is it as an emotion? Um, is it something that has to be a current? Do you have to actually feel it right now to love someone? It's very interesting because when Max is angry, he presumably doesn't actually feel love for his mother, yet he still loves her. And so the working through is, I think I said this before, but he works his way through to be able to feel the love that he's had the whole time, but that gets blocked, right? That we can't actually feel certain emotions that we have to certain individuals when another emotions come up and sort of blocked it out. And so it gives us a chance to sort of talk about the really interesting logic that emotions have that's very different from the way we think about a lot of other things. So again, I'm just supporting you, Freddie. It's, this book provides a lot of opportunity for some interesting and, and fairly complex discussions with kids. And of course, the, the literary critic here sees this from the Freudian point of view that uh, Max experiences a loss of superego and control over his emotions and his instincts. And uh, the place that he sails to is the sort of forest of the imagination. It's the forest of the id. Of course, he has to, to control his feelings and his instincts in order to be welcomed back to participate in a a civilized society, right, where we, we don't chase our dogs with forks and we don't say to our mothers we're going to eat them up. But that's just the literary critic's point of view. I'm not <laughs> sure that's useful for a family discussion. Oh, but it's also useful because I have come to just fall in love with this book again. And I think that in addition to are sort of advocating for talking about these big ideas with kids. I also think it's uh, what this book has helped me do is really connect with the child that is still in me. I want to still be there and I want my kids to understand that I am an imperfect person who was once a kid like them, who loves them deeply, deeply, deeply. And this book is such a great opportunity for really getting not only big with ideas, but also big with the big feelings that we all have. And I would like to say that I want us to get back out into the streets for some proper rumpusing, second lining, crowns on everyone, because boy, have we been in our rooms. 
Helen, you're right, for a very long time. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining me in this Zoom room and for interrogating the uh, with the terrible claws, the wild things in each of us. Yes, um, I am, as always, grateful to each of you for all that you've brought to this conversation and, of course, grateful to my own children for bringing their presence this has been the sixth and for now final episode of Little Voices, Big Ideas, which has been funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. It has been produced by the wonderful and amazing Thomas Walsh with theme music by Sam Galband. If you have enjoyed Little Voices, Big Ideas, drop us a review on your preferred podcast platform. We would love to hear from you. You can also see pictures of the families at WWNO.org. I'm Sarah DeBacher. This has been Little Voices, Big Ideas. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.